Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Jordens, here with your producer, Molly Stevens. Here on the Leaders Table podcast, it is our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success in order to empower you. This week, we're excited to share our conversation with Nina Reese, President and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Jason, what stands out to you most about our conversation with Nina? So this interview really started with I think a very powerful question, how do we realize progress from all of our investments in educational change before we all die? That's a really big question. What strikes me is that Nina pushes women leaders to move beyond leaning in and and talks about how finding your passion is really the key to success in a career. Absolutely. And you'll hear toward the end of the podcast, a very real, very personal conversation about women in leadership uh, from Nina. We covered everything from women raising their hands and seeking leadership to being seen and heard in a workplace. It was truly worth a listen. Um, and I, something I found very personally inspiring. Definitely. So here for your listening pleasure, Nina Reese at the Leader's Table. Nina, thank you for joining us today. We look forward to learning from your career, your experience, and um, uh, pulling out the the details, the ideas, the practices that have helped you to move from doing policy in the the U.S. House of Representatives to to representing a national charter movement as its uh, its advocacy arm. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Nina, one of the questions that you've posted to, to us was, how can we make sure that all of our investments in education reform produce an outcome before we die? So let me start by presenting that question to you. How, how can we do that? That's a great question, and I've been at this job for nearly 25 years now, and uh, I will say this. I think most of us who are interested in this work are interested in um, dramatically improving the outcomes of the students who are t- attending our schools in a dramatic way, certainly, uh, and, and to make sure that we're having an impact within our lifetime, so to speak. But in terms of resources, I will say this. We have now spent billions of dollars at the national, state, and local level on our public school system, and for whatever reason, the results that we're getting are nowhere near where they need to be, uh, certainly when you compare our performance to countries across the globe. And there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, but, but I do think um, you know, one of the things that we can all commit to is to understand that our education system is 
are couched in a very political atmosphere, and you can have really good ideas, you can have very talented teachers, you can have great stories, but if you're not coupling these things with the right kind of advocacy approach, understanding that elected officials ultimately uh, are going to um, map out your destiny, and if you're not also creating really a community that embraces what you do in a fundamental way, uh, one that can sustain the changes that you have introduced after you've you've long gone, then you will really not have made a huge difference at the end of the day. So I increasingly one of the lessons I've learned is the importance of building greater community buy-in and support, and that community buy-in can start with really starting with the business community and individuals who are around the education system but may not necessarily be in the political fray at the very at the very start. Sure. So change in education does not happen easily. As you are the president chief executive of the National Alliance uh, for Public Charter Schools, you are serving as the advocacy arm for the National Charter School uh, movement. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that work, um, how you how you achieve community buy-in, how, how you set a big vision um, and help to advance the ideas that are so important to uh, to driving the charter school movement nationally? Well, um, you know, we, we've been around now for 10 years. We're the national advocacy arm of the movement. As you know, the movement, though, is 25 years old, so it was here before our organization was created. One of the reasons our organization came together was also because we noticed that at the federal level, the federal government was heavily engaged in promoting charter schools because you had, at the time, a president who was very interested in charters and all future presidents have, have been interested in charter schools. So we wanted to make sure that there was a nas- national body that was actually offering good, solid advice to the administration to make sure that the investments were actually making a difference. Uh, in terms of my role in building community, there's always room for improvement, of course. We now have over 6,700 public charter schools around the country. We have uh, a presence in 43 states and in Washington, D.C., uh, we serve nearly 3 million students every day, and it remains a very diverse movement. Uh, and because of its grassrootsy nature, because of the way it grew so organically without a central command post growing it, um, it brings along a lot of um, advantages and disadvantages. The key advantage is, you know, you can't look at this movement and rightfully so say that it was created by a particular organization or a person. It truly grew because legislatures wanted to enact something that benefited children, and it ended up taking off because families were interested in sending their children to these schools, and you had entrepreneurs who were interested in opening the school. So that's actually the best formula for success because usually you come up with an idea, take Common Core, that's probably not the best idea, but you come up with the idea and then you think about selling it and creating the grassroots, whereas in this case... The idea took off fairly quickly, and all the pieces came together fairly easily in a lot of places. Um, so our job, you know, in terms of building community, we work very closely with our state association partners. But as you know, the state association's partners are not the only groups that are involved in charter schools. In fact, I um, spend a lot of time trying to make sure I know everyone who is engaged in the charter school debate because you now have so many other parties that are interested in this work. But The key difference between the associations and the other partners is that the state associations are only focused on charter school growth and success, whereas the other organizations have 
other agenda items on on their plate. Still, it's important mm-hmm. that we coordinate with them. One of the things we do every year, about three times a year, we pull together all the associations together to have a discussion about both what we're doing and what they are doing, and uh, we also tee up any uh, issues that we're, we're struggling with or issues where we need a policy decision around. Uh, we also have a policy council uh, that is chaired by uh, a member of our board, Jed Wallace from the California Charter Schools Association. That body also meets a couple of times a year in person uh, to go over trickier policy issues that deserve a broader array of expertise beyond just charter school experts. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to that, our state team recently created communities of practice in eight states with the goal of uh, pulling together all the different advocacy groups and interested parties that were interested in dramatically improving the quality of their state law uh, and to work with them in groups rather than in, you know, haphazardly. And so that effort is also one that we're watching carefully to see if it ultimately uh, results in better outcomes. Um, The advantage of building community is you have buy-in, you have a broader choir of people who are aware of what you're doing and how you're doing it, you know, so if you have the right people, it can definitely be a rewarding experience. But if you don't have the right people, or if you have the wrong wrong um, skill sets, so to speak, at the table, then it can definitely be a huge uh, drain on time and energy and focus. So our movement is truly diverse in a way that I, um, you know, both from a political diversity standpoint, uh, in terms of the types of people who are starting charter schools down to, um, you know, the racial, ethnic background. So pulling everyone together in unison sometimes may seem like a chaotic task, uh, but it has happened. And depending, again, on what you're trying to accomplish, there are ways to do that in a way that um, that can work. Mm-hmm. You know, I've also often said um, here and in other places that I'm a survivor of New York City public schools. I um, I went to elementary school in the 80s and got through middle school and, and high school barely in the 90s. And as a student, I went to John Jay High School in Brooklyn. Um, as a student, I, I what I saw was, was good teachers um, who really cared about, about students and students and families who really want something in life, but a deep, deep disconnect in school culture, a deep, deep disconnect, um, of course, resulting in, in terrible outcomes at that time. Now, a lot of the some things have changed over time, and I wonder what you think, how you think that the charter school movement has um, has created better outcomes for students who were kind of stuck in um, in, in sometimes in a vortex that was just dis- underserving them for for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look across the board at the schools that have um, demonstrated. Um, their capability in raising student achievement and it's not just happening in charter schools, it's also happening in a lot of uh, high-quality public schools and private schools. The common denominator really is a devoted principal who uh, can attract the right kind of talent, keep everyone motivated and rowing in the same direction. But the mission for all these groups or these schools has, you know, has to be no excuses, no excuses for uh, poor academic performance, no excuses for the adults in the schools to make uh, race or ethnicity or income an excuse for poor performance. I think coming at this exercise with a mindset that you are going to make it and that you're not going to let anything get in the way is crucial in 
the success that comes about afterwards. So um, I would also say, I mean, you, you do need to expand the school day and the school year, and um, then there's a cost associated with uh, turning things around quickly. So those who have succeeded have definitely leveraged time in more creative ways uh, to, to make up for some of the things that the student may not be getting at home um, or, um, you know, things that would enhance their learning. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2013, the New York Times um, wrote a piece calling the, the charter school movement a disappointment. And you wrote uh, a letter to the editor at that time. This is fe- February 23rd of 2013 that said, while rightly acknowledging the success of charter schools in New York City, you uh, missed the mark in calling the national charter school movement a disappointment. Interestingly, you point out in 2011, you praised New Orleans, where 75% of all schools are now charters, and the number of students attending a failing school is down threefold. Whether they're, you say, you go on to write, whether they are 5% of public schools as in New York or 75% as in New Orleans, charter schools are providing hope. In the last five years, the movement has added 1,700 schools and a million uh, students. Another 610,000 are on waiting lists. So here you're, you're pushing back at the, this idea that the movement itself was a disappointment, pointing to the to the hope that it was providing in in districts that in, in school in districts and schools and bodies that were kind of stuck in some ways. What's happened since uh, since two thousand thirteen? What's the what's the state of charter schools and the movement? Well, look, if if and again, uh, uh, the New York Times, um, you know, to the extent you look at the data, it is very difficult to call this movement a disappointment. And from a philanthropic investment standpoint, from a federal or state investment standpoint, if I were to point to one thing that I know for sure is going to make a difference, charter schools are definitely on top of that list. Now, you have some states that haven't done as good of a job of growing a healthy market and others that have. And what we've learned and what's happened since 2013 is the body of knowledge that we now have about what it takes to create a robust movement is vastly more sophisticated than what it was 25 years ago or even 20 years ago when the movement was in its infancy. So in that respect, uh, we are much better off. We're better at authorizing. We're better at closing poor-performing schools or folding those schools under the governance of another high-performing school. Uh, we are better at the conversation, how to um, talk about equity. Uh, that's an issue that's come up in a few places. And uh, and I think on the academic achievement front, you know that 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 trajectory has continued, especially for students in inner-city settings. Uh, so among low-income students, minority students, English learners, and disabled students, charters are a much better bank for the buck than attending any other school right now, according to all the studies that have t- that have taken place. But again, this is not just about raising student achievement. It's also about making sure that the students are graduating, going to college, mm-hmm. and also graduating from college with the skills they need to get out of poverty. So... Um, so we are, you know, we, we, we also think in that regard our, our schools do a much better job of setting you up for success. But a lot more ne- remains to be done, and I think acknowledging that, hey, there's been a lot of progress, so we have a lot more to do is the right frame rather than to say, oh, it's been a disappointment and that we need to start over somehow. I don't know uh, those who are oppo- opposed to charter schools. I really don't know if they are opposed to it just because 
the fundamental frame is something that they have a disagreement with or if it's because they've actually visited charter schools and seen what happens in them because it's really difficult to go to a charter school or a set of charter schools and leave these schools thinking that these schools shouldn't continue or not be inspired by the commitment of the principals in these schools. You know, as we look around the country, some of the the bright spots are are being led by the charter school movement. Uh, the activity in Washington D.C., for example, is a is an example of kind of a long time entrenched um, under achievement starting to be broken up a bit, and a lot of that is is being led by a group of charter schools that are are changing the status quo. What what do you what do you attest, what do you think are the, the top two or three things that have made charter schools successful where they have, have driven different outcomes and, and are leading change? Well, I would say the autonomy that comes with running a charter tends to attract people who are interested in pushing the envelope and um, overcoming or, you know, uh, defying the odds. Uh, so the, the formula of autonomy in exchange for outcomes is a good formula in the sense that it does push you to think outside the box, and most educators don't want to be bogged down by bureaucratic paperwork, although we have our share of bureaucracy in the chartering <laughs> space, but the trade-off is one that's attractive to the right types of leaders. Um, the other thing also is, you know, the, the fact that in most states that have strong charter laws, in fact, all of them have this component except for a handful of states uh, like Maryland, uh, the autonomy to hire teachers who are um, you know, qualified to teach but not necessarily certified through the traditional certification methods uh, and also teachers who are not part of the teacher collective union bargaining agreement also gives you freedoms and flexibilities that allow you to, uh, to make a lot of course corrections quickly rather than to stop to negotiate a contract with a, you know, uh, person who is overseeing multiple schools. So the autonomy, especially around staffing, is really important um, and as I said earlier, I think a lot of our charter school leaders come from KIPP, so uh, they've they've seen and they have kind of um, they they understand the fundamentals of, and the importance of dramatically improving the achievement of low income students. So the belief, the core belief that this can happen and it will happen, uh, is extremely important to that success. Uh, other than that, I think the other things is not really in the control of the leaders is the quality of the state law, the authorizers who are overseeing the law, and the surround sound around it. So that's a lot right there, but I think having um, laws that allow you or that reward success, laws that uh, have enough funding in them for you to open a high-quality school, uh, and then, you know, to the extent you don't have the, the funds through government sources, having philanthropic support to sustain you is really important. Um, but th the other thing that um, I was reminded of recently also is to the extent you, this is the first time you're running a school, it's really like running a business. You know, you do need to have connections to um, other entrepreneurs and philanthropists and people who ha have had experience running organizations and have had some experience in taking things to scale because ultimately – um, it is about running, um, you know, a, a successful enterprise. And there are a lot of common things you can do as the leader of an organization that, uh, you know, that, that, that can enhance the work environment. Um, and that will ultimately keep 
you know, make a more sustainable school and a more sustainable movement. I don't know if I answered your question, though. Um, but, yeah, I think autonomy is at the core of it. Sure. I want to dig in on your ideas around leadership, both um, for the 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 executives, the leaders around the country that are a part of the movement, and also for yourself. But I just want to go back to something that you were talking about earlier. You're, you're saying that um, that the char- that charter schools are a better bang for the buck uh, for underserved students, uh, for disabled students, uh, for for students of color. I just wanted to dig into that a little bit and and get a sense of of why that is. Why why have those those, those bright spots begun to uh, to emerge? Um, I mean, I think it's a couple of reasons. One is, again, this devotion to not making any excuses um, has, you know, attracted a lot of leaders in inner-city settings who are just fed up with the fact that these schools are not doing well academically. So there's a spirit of breaking the cycle of failure and uh, and proving that, you know, um, low-income students, minority students can actually do well if only they had the right instruction. And as you know, that the quality of a teacher is one of the most important components um, in a child's success in school. So these leaders have also been able to attract teachers who are not just educating students but also um, helping them in life. So um, I think those are the key factors that have led to the success uh, but also, I mean, these schools are smaller than they are schools of choice. Parents are selecting them for whatever reason, whether it's because of the art focus or the safety issue or whether it's a la- language immersion program. So the fact that a parent is making a decision and, um, uh, you know, making a choice actually does, um, you know, help in, in creating uh, a medium in which there's more of a vested interest in making things work. So um, I think all these components come together. But there is something in the charter formula. I can't really point at it and say it's only because of the no-excuses mindset. I think that that combination of autonomy in exchange for student achievement uh, in a lot of these school districts, as you know, the average tenure of a superintendent is less than two or three years sometimes. So leadership comes and goes, and when you have unstable leadership, then that impacts the quality of the principals in your schools and the quality of your teaching workforce. That could very well be one of the reasons why these big systems haven't been able to make a huge difference over time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the charter school movement has taught the public schools something? I do. I definitely think autonomy, site, you know, local site-level autonomy is key. Now, how much can you transport these learnings to the larger system? Is there a willingness to do that? It remains to be seen. Expanding the school day and school year, I mean, they all know that that's important, but it's not just expanding these hours, also leveraging those hours to do certain things that you cannot do during the regular school day. So it's not just about babysitting. It's about enhancing the learning, whether through sports and arts or through just more direct instruction. So, uh, so those are some of the lessons. And then on, on the, you know, the, the um, blended learning kind of um, front, I would say the work that Summit Public Schools are doing right now in California, where they've invited charters and traditional schools to share their uh, their lesson plans online to create kind of a you know, the largest uh, open source resource for education is definitely one of the, you know, benefits of having, you know, someone, a, a leader who is um, committed to the overall mission of improving education reform and 
um, and testing new ways of doing it. So mm. uh, that's it. But but I will I always say this to folks. I do think we need to invest a lot more in research and development and education in general because in our charter schools there are a lot of new things that are being tested every day. But you know, just coming up with a case study is not enough to then be able to replicate it in other places. The only way you can do this is if there's money for someone to come in to really watch what you've done and then come up with a formula to replicate it in other places. And that is costly in education for whatever reason. We're not making these investments the same way we make them in uh, healthcare. But that's going to be important if we really want to systemically replicate successful models, whether it's on the management front or on the pedagogy front across the board. Yeah, you know, as a as a kid who was stuck in a system that was not evolving um, fast enough to to help any of us, uh, I, the idea of rapid change and evolution of of a system or even evolution of a school building is very very exciting to me. But I also realized that the charter schools, well, charter schools were intended to be a place of experimentation that would then go and in, in, in inform. Uh, inform public school districts or inform other schools around the country um, certainly would love to see to see more more of that and an increasingly um, an increasing effort to, to learn those lessons and spread them yeah. I'd like to, to dig in a little bit on your your personal leadership story so you are a, a national CEO um, uh, I'm sorry, you're national president and uh, and CEO. You um, have spent time in the, the administration on Capitol Hill. Uh, you write, uh, publish op-eds, um, appear on TV. What um, what has gone into your success? And by the way, you've done all this while uh, while raising a child. I know you're the mom of an 11 year old. Um, how how have you tracked your own career, and what is what's what's been the secret to your own success? Um, I would say, um, you know, I, I didn't map my life this way. I um, simply love what I do, and I have seized on opportunities in, in, and have been lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time a lot where, uh, you know, my bosses at the time were interested in education reform and were not looking at it in a partisan way. Um, so I see this job as kind of an extension of everything else I've done in my life, which has all been really centered around empowering low-income communities to access better schools. Um, but in terms of, I guess, the secret, you know, I, I think it's important to um, have a sense of focus uh, and not get distracted with the noise around you. And I would say in Washington, D.C., it's easy to get distracted because there are so many other things that happen on a daily basis. This is probably true anywhere, I guess. But um, you, you need to really know what you want uh, and what you're passionate about. And once you figure that out, everything else pretty much falls into place because to the extent you're raising money or selling an idea, people are attracted to the passion and the hard work. And if the passion doesn't exist or if you're just interested in leadership for the sake of being a leader, then the chips are not going to fall into place as easily. Uh, and I've seen this in a lot of other people who've been in leadership roles where they have worked really hard to get to where they are today, but they're not really happy. And I think what's missing uh, in each and, each and every one of these cases is the real true passion for what they're doing. Um, so. And who who has mentored you? Interesting question. I, I encourage mentorship. I actually am trying to put together a program in our own office around mentorship. I have never had a mentor or sought a mentor, and this may have just been a, um, you know, a 
fact of life in the way um, I grew up in D.C. Um, and, you know, the kinds of jobs I had were really fast-paced. You didn't really have time to stop and think and ask for help. Um, and uh, But I have been... Um, I have been good about stopping and asking questions from the people who I thought could help me along the way. So it hasn't been a single mentor, but people who I knew could help me or who knew me enough to be able to give me advice. And so at different points in time, it's been different individuals. Sometimes it it, it has been my, my own boss, and other times it's been people who are kind of in a leadership role within the organizations that I was working in but who were not my direct boss or didn't work with me directly. And what do you think today is think a lot about I think a lot about um women who are emerging into leadership um and the the environment has changed quite a bit but you have um you have led in multiple environments Capitol Hill a federal administration a national nonprofit and now uh the leader of an advocacy organization managing a lot of state state stakeholders um, and and advancing some really important ideas. What are the things that you would say to women that are inspired by your path and want to emulate that or replicate it, replicate it in some way in their own careers? I never would go back to what I said earlier, which is to find something that you're truly passionate about, something that doesn't feel like work, something that is something that you are going to read about and think about and talk about outside of work. So that, to me, is really important, especially in advocacy. Uh, the other piece of it, I, mean, I, don't, I, I think hard work is crucial regardless of where you are in life. I probably work harder now than I did when I was in my 20s. It really should be the reverse, but I, I feel like the more I – uh, the more I stay in this role, the more work there is and the more work I want to do myself. And so um, I, I do think there's um, the stamina and the importance of, you know, uh, putting a lot of uh, effort into it is important. Um, the other question I'll say with a lot of women, and it's going to be different for millennials and other individuals if they're minorities and whatnot, is uh, the importance of raising your hand and asking questions uh, and to be um, – honest about what you want and I find this in my day-to-day work sometimes where you hear about someone who really wants to get something done but they don't come right out and tell you they ask other people and then you hear it through the grapevine I will say one of the things I've done for better or for worse is I've been very direct with my bosses about what I want to accomplish and what I need in order to be successful and I think there's a lot to be said about being a little bit more frank uh, about about what you want. I mean, you have to do it in a diplomatic way, of course, but um, but a lot of times I find myself pe- with people who are trying to think of a strategy to get to their goals, and I think the most direct route for me has always been asking the question and, and being honest about um, what I really think or what I really want. Not every, not, I haven't gotten what I wanted every time, but there is something really empowering about actually actually asking the question rather than to wait for it to be handed to you. Uh, on a personal note, I actually really do respect those who are, um, you know, who are more direct rather than uh, those who are, um, you know, not, not, I don't want to say shy, but more, um, un, you know, insecure or unsure of whether they should ask questions. So I definitely think women should be, should lean in a lot more when it comes to that. But um, but I also, I, going back to the, 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 the focus part, I think, you need to. I mean, sometimes I think sometimes sometimes people gravitate towards certain jobs and titles because of the status it brings, 
but again, going back to whether you really want to do this work is so important. My husband, um, uh, you know, used to be uh, used to work for the Wall Street Journal in Brussels, and when he came back here, he was working for a, a smaller newspaper and he told me you know the only thing he really liked about that job was the fact that he could tell folks that he was working at the wall street journal (laughs) we love the wall street journal of course but the bottom line is sometimes things sound better than they actually are so you want to be um you want to be you want to be uh doing something that you actually would do regardless of the title and it and and the stature so to speak because those things get old very quickly uh so to speak and um but the rest of it won't won't get old if you really care about it absolutely we absolutely cannot trade uh trade life for a job that is um that we don't like right or that that doesn't doesn't give us some moments of satisfaction it's just a lot of life to trade for uh uh for money right well, and I didn't mention money. I mean, that's another factor also. No, I was just talking about title and stature. But, yes, money definitely is a factor in here as well. So, sure. Um, yeah. yeah, and they say with, with women, you know, on the, on the wage gap question, it seems that one of the, the biggest barriers to, uh, to closing the wage gap or at least realizing pay equity is simply coaching women to ask, to ask for what they deserve, to ask for, ask for the raise, to request the, the review, but to ask uh, seems a very powerful uh, thing in women's lives, and 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 translates into into different outcomes. Yes, and I would also say, um, you know, a lot of times with um, female peers and those who report to me, I do think they also hesitate and. It's not even just about making the ask, but deep down they also may not think they deserve a certain amount when men are definitely not like that. So, uh, so that's something that needs to change. But at the end of the day, I was at, attending a, a forum recently, um, and um, Kathleen Sebelius pointed this out quite well, which is that a lot of times women actually don't seek leadership roles. They want to be the second in command. And um, oftentimes they're probably more qualified than perhaps some of the men who are running for the leadership roles. So, again, you know, um, you kind of have to have the balls sometimes to to want to go for it and the desire to um, uh, to get there and not second guessing yourself. And I will also say, you know, raising money along the way, whether it's selling your idea in the court of public opinion, whether it's selling it to Congress, whether it's raising money for a cause, salesmanship is really important in our life and it's one of those um uh, things that uh, you know uh, is not valued as much in schooling right you know you, you don't you don't value and teach the art of um the sale as much as you teach other things and i think it's important for um for women, for women to understand that they are um in everything they do they're also selling um themselves and that and the uh the causes that they're fighting for so uh being able to really articulate the cause succinctly in a way that convinces others that they should be also invested in it is really important. And that's certainly something that I myself, it's a work in progress for me too, so I tend to not want to kind of be upfront around raising money, for instance, but it's um, one of those things that's really important in uh, in our success. You know, I, I sincerely hope that you are are mentoring many, and that I, I'd love to be in a management seminar with you. I just—it seems like you would have so many, um, so many uh, 
tidbits of knowledge, uh, insights, and just pure motivational uh, pieces with a clear head that um, that I think that you could share. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me just ask you a couple more questions. Um, I'm wondering about I'm wondering about how you start your day. How do you uh, uh, prime for success? What is the What are the first couple of hours of your day usually look like? Um, you know, I knew you were going to ask me this question, and I'm probably not a good example of um, someone um, that you'd want to point to in terms of how I start my day. I will tell you what the way I would like to start looks like, and then I will t- I'll answer the other question uh, afterwards. Sure. So I think you know, being able to you know start early enough where you actually have time to um, reflect a little bit on the day ahead is important for me nowadays. Though I literally get up get ready, get my daughter to school, get to the office, and I don't start that process until I'm at the office around 8 o'clock or so. And I would say the first 30 minutes of like thinking through your day, making sure that you have some clear objectives. This is something that um, uh, someone who I actually should consider a mentor recently told me, which is to you really need to to really make the time and the blank space to think about your objectives a lot more often than you do because once you know what the goal is, the strategies and the tactics will fall into place much faster. But if you start with the tactics uh, or strategies, right, without really the objective in mind, then your day will just be a list of tasks that you're checking off. So I've been trying to to be better at that. Um, But I usually just start with a cup of coffee and I don't really eat anything till noon, which is a habit that I need to break. I know that. So uh, I usually work out at the end of the day. I have long wanted to start doing that in the morning, but again, because I have to get my daughter ready for school, I don't have enough time to also fit a workout on top of that. And is there any tech um, tech apps, uh, tools, things that you use to, to kind of hold it all together together or make your make your professional and personal lives work? Um, you know, this may just be a function of my being in my late 40s. I have used apps and technology before, but I nothing beats just having a to-do list with boxes next to it that I check. And um, I'm a big um, fan of um, the different organizing tools. I was just reading a book called um, um, Making Ideas Happen, and it comes with a whole host of notebooks and uh, to-do lists. And so for me, it is just having the... T- to do so every time I go into a meeting, <clears throat> I try to take notes, but I'm very quick to then turn um, the notes into action items. And um, and if it doesn't turn into action items, it's per- perhaps or probably a meeting that didn't need to take place according this, to this book. So um, so based on those action items, I then prioritize which ones are things that I need to take care of immediately, which ones can wait, and which ones are kind of third tier categories. And so. Based on that, I, I proceed, but I keep track of these things just in a notebook, and, a, and to the extent there is a deadline, I try to insert it just in my Outlook calendar because that is the one tool that I use religiously. If that got lost somehow, I literally will lose, um, <laughs> you know, my what I'm going to do the next day. I have, you know, I don't have any other mechanism to um, to track my day. Absolutely. Um, it's a great filter for meetings, by the way. And I have to say, I'm a big Evernote person, and I, I do use apps, and I, I've experimented with lots of things. There is nothing more satisfying than simply drawing a line through something on a list that you accomplished. It is just yes. a <laughs> remarkable a thing. Yeah. 
There was a great Wall Street Journal piece about this recently, which I cut I cut out instead of save it online. But um, I just it's a reminder that my technique is is validated and the better technique versus using all the apps. I do think technology is designed to make your life a lot easier, but it can also make it quite complex if you don't if you're if you're using these tools without um, you know without a real goal in mind. Absolutely. Well, Nina, we thank you for for your time. Just um, before we let you go, if you were to give one bit of advice for millennials um, in pursuing leadership, uh, these uh, when I'm talking about millennials, I'm talking about young people um, that are that seem to have started it at some some set of uh, of years, but are just in general just considered young these days. What would you suggest for them? And we have a, quite a few millennials in our office, and I really enjoy spending time with them. Um, we, they're lumped into a category, but they're all so different that I almost think the terms um, are not doing these young individuals justice. Um, I would say, you know, that the, the change, the changing face of the workforce actually gives them opportunities that didn't exist when I was their age. The jobs I had were much more hierarchical. Moving up was much harder, whereas now, um, you know, you can start your own organization. All you need is a website, right? So um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I go back to what I said earlier. I mean, identifying what you're really passionate about, being patient. I, If there's one thing that I... I suffered from, and the one thing I regret the most is the lack of patience. Um, I do think in public policy, to the extent the work is in public policy or advocacy, patience is important. Sometimes you don't know that you're making progress uh, or you leave something too quickly and um, all it, you know, all you needed to do is just stick it up and stick it up for one more year perhaps for, for the for the results to come in. So um, I would say identifying what you want being patient and having a plan really to reach the goals that you have in mind. And ultimately, within each workplace, um, the value that millennials bring is their knowledge of technology and uh, their ability to really kind of um, shift gears in a, in, a, in a very different way than the way we grew up in um, a Gen Xer. So um, I think building greater bridges with the Gen Xers so that um, we can leverage each other's skills um, is going to be important in in both of our successes. So I would encourage them to have more conversations and not to dismiss the older generation perhaps because they are more traditional in their approach to work. I think we both have a lot to learn from each other. Absolutely. That's great advice. Nina Reese, thank you so much for for spending your time with us today. We really uh, appreciate your time, your wisdom, and your insights. Great. Thank you so much. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing.